Happy New Year and welcome back. This is Adrian Lawrence and welcome into the conversation. This time I bring you a change maker who happens to be the lead California organizer for Starbucks Workers United. That's Tyler Keeling. Thank you so much for joining us, Tyler. Of course, I'm super excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Yes, and I'm excited to have you here given all of the good work you're doing with moving forward and advancing rights of workers at Starbucks. Now, I know there are ongoing strikes and also 2022 was a year really marked by change with the organization coming forward. When you look back on 2022, what do you think was the most significant advancement that you all made? I feel like there's so many, but if I had to choose just kind of like a single one, I would probably just say like, the the fact that we took this movement that started in Buffalo, New York, and kind of like took it national, and all of these leaders from all these stores across the country, you know, in a year, over two hundred and seventy of them uh, came together to build a national structure that was extremely worker led. Um, and I I can't even wrap my mind around it most days, so <laughs> I think I would probably say that is the single most impressive and like exciting thing that we've done so far. Well, it's definitely something to be excited about and also proud of. It's unfortunate that we have so many major corporations out there who are not providing for basic protections for workers out there. And so when it comes to the movement for Starbucks, what are some of the things that you all are fighting for? I mean, a big part of it really is kind of just like respect and dignity in the workplace and like having better, safer conditions at work. You know, as it stands during the pandemic, we had a lot of our uh, our workplace protections and safety protections rolled back, um, despite pushback from workers, um, including myself and my store. And we want to be able to have a say in the workplace, so we can have better working conditions and safer working conditions, and make sure that we're you know ultimately taken care of. This is a company that really, really asks its, uh, asks its workers to be. You know, like longtime employees, they don't want just like you know the college job reputation that they sometimes get. They want people to be at this company for their life, and they aren't willing to provide any sort of, you know, uh, ability for that to happen while you work there, unless you know you climb your way up the you know the chain of management, right? So we want to create a sustainable workplace. Yeah, it doesn't seem like it's that much to ask for, especially given the profits that Starbucks generates and also the noteworthy service that Starbucks baristas are known to provide. And it seems that Starbucks has not necessarily been as agreeable in terms of the unionization. As I understand it, they have refused to negotiate with at least 21 recently unionized stores in Washington state and also with Oregon and the US labor protection. Protections or prosecutors have alleged that they are doing this illegally in a complaint. Yeah, I mean, you know, I I'm part of what's called the National Bargaining Committee, which is a worker-led collective, like a or committee rather, of um, workers that are kind of like coming together to figure out what our contract's going to look like, figure out what our proposals we're taking to the table are looking like, and so I'm really cued into all of the bargaining stuff happening, and I actually was at five different bargaining sessions and each one of them played out the exact same where Starbucks's labor representatives and lawyers got up from the table after about five minutes and just walked out of the room. I experienced this day over day and this was here in Southern California and I know the same thing happened at every single bargaining table across the country since we started bargaining on October 24th. 
And why do you think that they are unwilling to negotiate? Oh, I can absolutely tell you why. Our CEO in his biography, autobiography wrote that he believed that if we believed in him as our leader, that we wouldn't want a union. So this is a personal vendetta for him. Um, and he came back to the company in April when the union movement went full swing to union bust. And you know, there was a New York Times article recently published uh, where some someone interviewed like personal friends and like his inner circle. And they all corroborated that, saying that this was like a personal thing for him. So, you know, they're the people who walked away from our table are under direct direction of our CEO, who is doing everything he can. Our CEO is quite literally willing to tank the reputation of this company in order to fight this union. What he doesn't understand is that we're not stopping. Oh, wow. It seems kind of patriarchal slash megalomaniacal. It's just very unproductive, as I would say, in terms of advancing the workforce and recognizing that it's your workforce that sustains you. And so giving them the dignities that they're requesting would seem to be kind of just something that's expected if you want to continue to be profitable as an organization. But then again, that is just me. But now that we have embarked on 2023, I know that just uh, what, not even a month ago, that there was a three day strike? How did that go? Yeah. Oh, it went amazing. Um, we wanted to double down on our fight, um, which, you know, leads to the name, the double down strike. Uh, we did a three day strike with over 100 stores across the country going on strike for at least one day of those three days, but the majority of them going on strike for all three days. Um, my store went on a three day strike. And I don't think it could have happened at a more perfect time because, you know, workers are, you know, holiday season, workers are worn out and exasperated. And that strike was so reinvigorating to keep fighting to make the workplace better. Um, and, you know, across the country, we had over a thousand workers on strike. It's our second major nationally coordinated strike. And it just shows that we're in it for the long haul and it shows the solidarity across the country. And it shows that we're not just these like isolated, frustrated stores that are kind of just like on our own. We are, you know, a collective of workers fighting to make a difference. And I think this really proved that. That's fantastic. I like to hear that you all were operating as a unified front uh, to let them know that you are a workforce that sustains their corporate profits. And thus these dignities that you ask for aren't necessarily a big ask, especially if it means that maybe the CEO and the C-suite takes just a little bit less in terms of their annual bonuses. But now that we're into 2023, what do you expect from the momentum? Will it continue to be galvanized and to move forward? Or is there any fear out there that people will be reluctant to put forward with the union efforts? You know, during the summer, we did see a small, like a, a downtick of stores filing because of how much union busting this company had done. Uh, illegally withholding benefits, firing union leaders, all that stuff that's been in the news for the last year. Um, but as the summer ended and we headed into the holiday season and all the college students were back at work and all that stuff like that, you know, it wasn't like transitionary jobs. We saw an uptick again in stores filing and we saw an uptick in activity in stores because workers were seeing that these promises Starbucks were making weren't, weren't, you know, reliable. They weren't permanent. They were face value. And we've seen that just continue on in the last couple of months and heading into 2023, like I fully see us just continuously growing and more workers, you know, taking a leadership role in their stores to organize and unionize and fight for a contract. Um, I don't see it going anywhere. And then 
on another side of things, you know, our CEO, uh, our current CEO, Howard Schultz, is leaving in April. And so we're getting a new CEO um, taking over in his position. And that's going to be such an interesting transition because, you know, like we said, the megalomaniac, right? He'll be out of that position. So we've got we've got a big fight ahead of us, but it's a fight that we're all so ready for. Yes, and in terms of your new CEO, uh, do you know anything about how that individual is responsive to unions? We have an idea. Um, it's and it seems like you know, how would you say like the worst has happened in a lot of ways, um, and we're looking forward to working with this new CEO in order to negotiate our contract. We're ready for it, and we're ready for him to come to the table with us. All right, then. Well, I guess that's the most you can really ask for. Uh, but uh, in the event that there is um, just less cooperation than you'd want, uh, are there any other potential um, levers that you all are willing to pull in order to ensure that your voices are heard? I think we kind of proved the direction we're willing to go with the double down strike, escalating from a one day national strike to a three day national strike. Um, and I think that that shows, you know, like like I said, the direction we're willing to go in order to fight for that contract, and we will continue to fight until we have it, um, whatever we have to do. Fantastic. Uh, that is good to know that you all are, uh, you know, ten toes down, and you're ready to dive in to ensure that you get the dignity and the rights that you want for your workers and for your team. And so I'm wondering on a personal note in terms of fighting this fight, how has that been? I know in workplaces where I've seen people be mistreated and despite failing to recognize that unified you are stronger efforts, people were unwilling to come together and to speak out. I think in part because many were afraid and there are people who suffer retaliation and whatnot. So what has your journey been like? You know, it hasn't been as harrowing as some stories that I've heard. Um, I think that there isn't a single worker in this company who isn't frustrated with the state of things and doesn't want it to be better. And I think you know need to know how to talk to people. And I have a very good rapport with my coworkers. And so we were able to organize really quickly. And you know, even in times where it felt kind of hopeless, We've always come back together and found that hope and wanted to continue that fight. And that spark is always there, even if sometimes it's hard to find. And we're seeing that in every store across this country. I've seen stores that were divided in their vote swing back around where every worker is fighting for the contract now. And I don't see, you know, like I don't see so much opposition on the other side of things. I see a lot of like love and care and camaraderie in this. Um, and I feel it in my own store too, with my own coworkers and with all the people across the country that I've gotten to meet in this movement. That's wonderful. Thank you so much, Tyler. And if people want to support your efforts, where should they go? Um, please hit up our social medias at SB Workers United. Um, we have, you know, GoFundMe links on there to our strike funds, to our solidarity funds to support fired workers. Um, that is really like a great way to support this, and the social medias are the best way to keep up with all of our news and updates. Great, thank you so much. That's Tyler Keeling, lead California organizer for Starbucks Workers United. Welcome back to the conversation. It's Adrian Lawrence, and this time I have one of my TYT colleagues joining me. That is our national correspondent, Matt Sheffield. Thanks for joining us, Matt. 
Hey, great to be here. Yes, I know. So right before we hit that clock and kicked over to 2023, well, there were some revelations revealed. Um, largely that former top Trump aide saying that Republicans thought lying about 2020 would help their careers. What was that about? Yeah, well, it's it's so progressives have have long thought, you know, and it's been pretty obvious that Republicans are willing to lie about pretty much anything if it's advantageous to themselves. But this was in in the January 6th Congressional Committee, Select Committee, they interviewed, of course, a bunch of people. And one of the people they interviewed was Alyssa Farah Griffin, who is Trump's former communications director. So she was in charge of everything that he said, and everybody else was ordered to say on his behalf. And she eventually decided, you know what? I don't like the guy, and I'm. And then when he started concocting this whole lie about 2020, she decided she was going to quit. And so she and she realized that a lot of people were like, okay, so it's obvious he lost. I've got to find another job here because I'm going to have to start planning for the future, right? I got to pay my rent. I got to you know support my family, whatever. And so so she she put out the word to her staff, you know, it's like, hey, if you want to shop your resume, please go ahead. I will help you. I promise I will help you get a job. And then the guy who is the personnel director in the Trump administration, he's like, if you are caught shopping your resume, you're going to be immediately fired. And so basically in response to that, a lot of Trump people, according to her, decided, well, you know what, I'm just going to lie. I'm going to go along with this this stuff. We know that Trump lost fair and square, but you know what, hey, it's good for our career. And she singled out in particular Kaylee McEnany, who was Trump's final press secretary. She called her a liar and an opportunist and said that she was willing to do basically anything that it took to get herself cash. And you know, she certainly did cash in by she's now the host of a co-host of Outnumbered on Fox News Channel right now. Wow, so Griffin finally decided that it was not something she wanted to be a part of in terms of the Trump administration. But of course, that's after he lost. And then she decided to call everybody out. Um, well, she decided to support those people who were wanting to quit and look for something, uh, look for something in the future. And so, you know, and but they really, there was so much intimidation there that people felt like that there was nothing that they could do. They couldn't tell the truth um, if they if they knew what was good for them. But that was basically the the word was put out, and you know, and some of them decided to go a little extra mile and lie. A lot more, but like you don't you don't see what what's kind of notable about this story is that you know so Trump and and Republicans they lie all the time about everything, but here was a a very high level Republican actually willing to admit yeah we lie if it's good for us and we have no problem with it, um, so yeah pretty notable. Yeah, it is quite so, and especially those lies coming at the forefront even more and more because you know not only did we see so many members of Trump's team, whether it's his legal team or those by his side, who have been now called to answer because of their lies about the 2020 presidential election, but then in seeing George Santos be advanced as a congressperson based on lies he told, it really seems to be something now very much associated with the Republican Party, these lies. Oh, no question about it. I mean, and even now, Ronna McDaniel, who was one of the other people that was named by Alyssa Farah Griffin in her testimony, she said, you know, Ronna McDaniel knows that Trump lost fair and square, that there was no fraud. And to this day, right now, 
she will not admit that in public. Um, so it's it's just yeah, deceit and lying about stuff is it it is the cornerstone basically of the party, and certainly that reflects back to Donald Trump. But it but it was there before him as well. I think that's important to point out. Oh, absolutely. I think there's always been a long-standing viewpoint of you know if a politician's talking, they're a liar, and most uh, the thought of that most lawyers are liars, and then most lawyers become politicians, and so on and so forth. But it almost seems like the level of lies that have been coming out of the GOP within the last several years have just been. It's just a completely and totally appalling, as though we've hit new depths of depravity almost. Oh, yeah, I think that's true. Although, you know, like you can go back to the Bush administration, though, you know, like they had their divisions over the Iraq war and whether they should tell the truth about what they actually knew about how poorly it was going. And and there was a guy that infamously came out with this criticism of people. He said, You people, you live in the reality based community. Um, and we don't we don't have to do that. We will create our own reality, and that's basically what Donald Trump does every single day. Like he really thinks it's it's like the George Costanza uh, theory of politics that it's not a lie if you believe it. <laughs> Except it actually is. <laughs> I just thought Trump was really good at, you know, enforcing these principles of that whole the secret thought. Um, you know, this thought of as long as I believe it, it will come to fruition. But then when you kind of realize, no, he's just a manipulative, you know, grifting liar. I think that's something that most of America needs to come to terms with. Um, even though it seems, or I would say that Griffin's revelation and sharing this information, being a top Trump aide, that Logically, that should be persuasive for a number of these MAGA minions out here, but it probably won't necessarily make a dent, right? Well, they probably won't even see it because, of course, Fox News isn't going to talk about this story because it makes one of their hosts look like a complete sociopath. Um, but you know what, um, Adrian, you did actually make a point about the whole the secret in Donald Trump. That's actually a point about him. There's something about him that a lot of people don't know, and that is that when Donald Trump was a kid, the guy who was the pastor of the church that his parents made him go to was named Norman Vincent Peale. And Norman Vincent Peale actually is sort of the grandfather of the secret philosophy. And so he had this idea, he literally wrote a book called The Power of Positive Thinking. And basically told people, if you imagine it, then it will happen. So it's really pretty incredible actually that there is actually a line there. Yeah, that's actually, and it's somewhat terrifying in part. But yeah, wow, that is incredibly fascinating without a doubt. Um, yes, and so uh, now we're into 2023. We know that the January 6th committee is kaput, uh, but let's talk a little bit about some of the things that they did on their way out the door. I know they definitely seem to be criticized for being soft on intelligence and law enforcement failures uh, as it concerns um, you know, the attack on the US Capitol. Would you say that your reporting is finding things consistent with that? Um, yeah, well, that and it was something that so there were there were staffers who were working for the committee, you know, as as they were progressing through their work, and they 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 you know said to the press and you know anonymously in various other ways that they were concerned that the report was only going to be about Trump 
and all the stuff that his people, he and his people did, which of course, obviously, that is the the most important aspect of it. But the reality is that in order for that to happen, there were a lot of other mistakes that other people made, um, including not taking the uh, the reports that they were getting. So they were the FBI was getting all kinds of reports about, hey, you know, uh, we can literally see these. You know, right-wing extremist militia groups, white nationalists, you know, Christian supremacists, violent you know types talking about, hey, like literally after. So Trump gave a tweet where he said, "I need you guys to come to Washington to to protest on January 6th. It's be there. It's going to be wild." And literally within minutes of him doing that, there were some people on a website for Donald Trump super fans. They literally started talking about how do we build a gallows? Does anyone know how to build a gallows? And it was not a joke. They actually meant it and sure enough, somebody actually did. People showed up with the different you know, wood pieces and, and all the right hammers and nail stuff. And they built a gallows and that was their intention was to hang Mike Pence. And that was right, and the FBI was fed this information right from the get go. And the DC Capitol Police, they also were given some of this information by people trying to get them to take this stuff seriously. You know, and, and these are these are real problems. And and but the January 6th final report, the committee report, they didn't put any of this stuff in there about what had happened and how people had messed up. And and one of the other things that was also kind of really unfortunate to note in the report also was that, so the the guy who ended up, who is the current house sergeant at arms. So that's like the military, like the police force of the House of Representatives. He told them, you know, we would have taken this more seriously if these demonstrators were black. And that wasn't in the report either. So, like, there, there, there were a lot of and intelligence failures and law enforcement failures with all that stuff. There is just, and people need to know about it. Yeah, I was actually going to ask you why you thought law enforcement didn't take it seriously, with a caveat that my thought was that it's because. Well, law enforcement is at least 70% white and male, and these individuals who were storming the Capitol very much mirrored them, and thus they did not see them as a threat. And so, your added note there in terms of if they were black, they would have taken it more seriously, that sounds very much aligned with already the premonition of so many of those out there who were wondering why law enforcement didn't act swifter and faster. Now, the fact that they omitted this from the report, why do you think Congress did not include it? Well, from what we can understand, Liz Cheney, the the so there were two Republicans who were on the on the panel, and Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger, and Liz Cheney was the co-chair of the panel, and it was her opinion that she wanted the report to only be about Trump and his cronies, and because she thought that it would be more powerful of an indictment against him if there was none of the other stuff in there, and so. You know, based so they had they had different groups in the in in the investigation team. So they had like and they call them by colors, like gold team and and blue team, etc. And basically, she decided to just stuff all the stuff that the other teams did because she wanted to go after Trump. And 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 look, and it fits her narrative. We have to remember this is a partisan Republican person, and so for her to say that there were 
you know, other Republicans who made failures or, or you know, did extreme things or the intelligence. I mean, she's in love with the CIA, you know, and FBI. So of course, she doesn't want to um, put stuff in there that would be derogatory about them. And that's unfortunate because if she wanted to make it all about Trump, she could have added that in because Trump is white supremacy. Ah, but then again, those are just my thoughts. And I want to thank you so much for joining us. That's Matt Sheffield, TYT National Correspondent. Thanks, Matt. All right, thank you.